1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Hall Show podcast today on the pod. With real estate sales completely tanked and nervous mortgage holders carrying significant debt, how much further will the Bank of Canada push rate hikes? Plus, the Vancouver Park Board's vote to remove the Stanley Park bike lane may be attracting all the noise, but we look at how its past decisions have left the board a financial mess. And how do you play Wordle, or how do you roll a joint? We look at Canada and BC's top how-to searches on Google and YouTube. That's all next on the Jazz Hall Show podcast. Well, the Bank of Canada is expected to cap its tumultuous year with another interest rate increase tomorrow. Now, private sector forecasters are split on how big the bank will go when the rate hike is uh, announced on Wednesday. Now, there's no doubt uh, the central bank governor, Tiff Macklin, has been clear over the past month that he's not done raising borrowing costs for uh, Canada. So what does this all mean for our economy and more importantly, your pocketbook? Joining me now is CKNW business analyst Michael Levy. Hello, Michael.
2: Afternoon, Jazz.
1: Good afternoon. Well, financial markets are betting on a quarter rate hike on Wednesday, uh, which could bring the bank's benchmark interest rates to 4% for the first time uh, since 2008. Others are saying that uh, it may be another half-point move. Where is your view on this issue?
2: Uh, It's going to be, uh, you know, this is a really succinct answer here that's going to give you no information. It's either going to be a quarter or a half. The fact is that it's not going to be three-quarters of 1%, which in all actuality is what uh, the Bank of Canada should be doing if their goal is to cut inflation and cut it fast, cut it hard, in order to get the economy back on track, in order to get Canadians back on track. They've got to attack inflation, but what they're worried about is if they go too high, they're going to put a further crimp into the economy, And that's going to hurt even worse, higher interest rates and the economy slacking. It's going to do that anyways. So my guess is going to be a quarter of 1%. Uh, But as I say, don't be surprised if it's a half. But they've just got to do this. They've got to keep going. And all they're doing here is they're going to make the increases smaller. And it's going to be over a longer period of time. The end pain, Jazz, I'm afraid is going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Now do you expect another hike in January? Absolutely. but again, if the economy is stuttering and uh, you know uh, not going or, or, or not uh, uh, supporting Canadians because the economy is bad and business is bad and things are slackening off, then they may skip one and I say one interest rate hike in other words they just might stand on the sidelines but it's not going to be because things are getting better on the inflation front it's going to be going to be because of the impact on the economy of the previous
1: rate hikes are we um this rate hike itself like there may be another increase in january you said or they may wait or whatever it may be but can we expect many more heading into the new year or are we pretty much near the end now
2: I think that we're going to see them throughout the year 2023. If you take a look at the inflation numbers, and there's going to be new ones coming shortly, inflation is, in some cases, in some sectors, softening a little bit. But it's nowhere near moving quickly enough in the direction that we Canadians, and the Americans, by the way, and the Europeans, by the way, need it to move so Uh, I I think we're going to see rate hikes all the way through the year and probably um, come to an easing sometime uh, first part of 2023. And by the way, I want you to come back to me next year sometime and say, Michael, you were wrong. Everything's been righted and inflation's come down and I'll be the happiest wrong I've ever been. Michael, one of the
1: things... uh uh, you know, I think the, the most important thing really is, is the impact this is going to have on, on people, specifically when it comes to mortgages and variable rate uh, mortgages. I mean, we're at that point where some of the, the, the changes that we were seeing are now impacting those very, very uh, variable rate mortg- mortgages that we're talking about. This is a real, I mean, I can't think of in my lifetime beyond the early 80s uh, and those interest rates, but this is quite significant in regards to the bottom line budgets of many everyday people.
2: Uh, jazz, it certainly is, and let, let's just go back to the beginning of two thousand twenty-two. A variable rate mortgage for somebody with good credit standing would have been nine tenths of one percent the beginning of the year. Uh, the variable rate mortgage tomorrow, after they raise rates, let's say by fifty basis points, will be five point seven percent. Now, just think about that, and think about the hole it's going to be uh, or it's going to make in a homeowner's budget. Uh, having to now uh, start to dish out of pocket money that they didn't think they would have to, Uh, those that were paying off interest and principal, which is variably all uh, uh, um, mortgages of this type variable rate mortgages, they've now they're now at a point where they're just paying off interest, nothing is going to principal. And they're also may have to go to look to supplement those payments because uh, they're just not enough to cover what the bank has loaned you. And um, one of the things they're looking at, Jazz, and this is new, is to rewrite some mortgages and even go out as far as 40-year mortgages. Hear what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. 40-year mortgages because the last thing the bank wants is to own your house. They don't want your house. They don't want your collateral. So as I think we've said before, they will do everything in their power to make it so that you can pay your mortgages and your mortgage payments while we sort ourselves out on the inflation front and interest rates then do start to come down.
1: Let's go to Parker in Vancouver. Hi, Parker.
0: Hey, Jazz. Great show as always. Um, I'm a, a, a dad. I've got a, I've got a down payment and I'm in a real struggle because I want the mortgage i want the rates to skyrocket um because i'm in a position where i need to buy a home or a place that we can house a family so it's like you know what how long do i wait um you know remember there's a lot of people of us that we've waited for the time uh when housing wasn't being speculated on and and you know it's unfortunate people are in a tough spot but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of us that are savers and we've been punished for being savers um so yeah i'd just be interested to see what michael says about you know, these people or us. You know, we we need a home. Yeah, uh, and we've got money for a down payment, but um, you our prices dropping right though.
1: Time. I mean, our prices dropping for you. Like, I mean, the challenge we have is sales have dropped, and we report on it on a regular basis. But we just had somebody from the BC Assessment Authority on yesterday, saying based on July first assessment, that's when they do the assessment. As you know, the, when our assessments come in in January, they're saying it's there's going to be an increase of five to fifteen percent in value. Also, obviously, that doesn't represent the moment, but are you finding any difference in regards to, uh, A, selection, and B, affordability for you?
0: Slowly, slowly. And, you know, it takes time. It Mm -hmm. it can take about two years for things to really uh, take shape. But, yeah, we're wanting it to change, obviously. Um, We're at a premium, the pricing of homes, and it's, it's, it's out of control for a lot of families, our youth. You know, I'm worried about my son. We needed a correction, and we still do. It, it's really unfortunate, but a lot of people will be bag holders—the ones that really speculate, speculated on on real estate, the ones that took home equity to buy a rental property, uh, people that you know, people that have Airbnbs. Uh, we needed a cleanup. We need to diversify our economy, and I feel really bad for people in a tough position. But we need we need it to come back to reality. The the pricing of homes need to be in line with
1: the incomes. Parker, thank you so much for your comments. I'm really glad you called in. Uh, Michael, that's, I guess that's part of the issue. I mean, interest yeah. rates were down in 2008. But if you go even back to 2001, uh, when the stock market didn't provide the return or a low bank uh, or even interest rates from the bank, uh, you know, savings accounts used to give you a lot more and probably do now compared to what they did five or six or seven years ago. The home became a commodity, became an asset, not just here in Vancouver, but in Singapore, Singapore, to London, to New York. I mean, around the world, uh, housing isn't just a home; it became a place where you invest, and that's part of the challenge. I think everyday folks have, and a legitimate one.
3: Well, absolutely, and Jazz, your your caller has nailed it because prices are still out of range, even though the interest rates mortgage rates are up there are far fewer sales sales are way off but your home prices are not falling anywhere near the same rate that uh um, that, that 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 the mortgage rates have gone up or that um sales are 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 not Boisterous at all. I I, I think sales are at 50% of listings. So it is a conundrum. And the problem is if more housing came on the market right now, today, with today's mortgage rates, those people who you want to get into those homes. Wouldn't be able to afford them because they wouldn't be able to afford the mortgages. And these are people who are middle class people, working people, who can't live in the area they desire, or the greater Vancouver, or even out into the valley. Uh, And, and Jazz, this is going to make no difference to them because they're not going to be able to afford to pay a mortgage.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the frothiness of the market is definitely gone. I've talked to real estate agents, uh, and and I think things are coming back to normal. But normal in Vancouver is still high. What I also found interesting, I was talking to a banker this weekend, is the fact that there's going to be a lot more – Pre-sales required for even development. So never mind the big developers. Even this sort of the mid-sized developers who are building those condos and townhouses, they're going to have to have a set amount of pre-sales. Uh, and then they'll be allowed yeah. to borrow from the bank. So it's not just one of homeowners; it's also supply and developers having difficulty uh, attracting that capital from banks to actually build and uh, to build homes. That we also <laughs> require. I mean, there's half a million uh, immigrants coming in 2025. We're about 424, 40 uh, now in this country. So it's a challenge. Uh, yes, prices may stabilize, uh, but it also requires developers to continue to build. And they're having challenges as well in in attracting uh, some of that capital as well.
3: Jazz, they're having huge challenges because what they do is they go out to private lenders to get what they call bridge financing, which is what you're talking about until they have enough pre-sales in order then to go for traditional bank financing and those that have given the bridge financing to see them over the hump and expected to see money back in a year or two are not seeing that money back because nothing is selling in these developments in these developments that are going forward. So that just exacerbates the problem makes it worse, worse because there's no inventory coming onto the marketplace. I mean, it is really a serious situation when you look at housing, and then it becomes even more serious when you have a recession looming, which is going to hurt people, working people, all the way up and down the spectrum. This is not a good time, and just when we got cut off with the noise on the line, uh, uh, Jazz, uh, the, 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 the fact is. Both central banks, the the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada, they missed this. They absolutely missed it. Uh, Inflation was going to be transitory. Well, yeah, it's going to be transitory as long as two to three years is transitory. But as I say, the central bankers missed it, and now they're trying to catch up and make up for it, and it's going to be a little bit painful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to Zelda in Langley. Hi, Zelda.
4: Hi there. Um, Your expert there, Michael, is completely right. Uh, They're raising the rates too slowly. I saw this coming and I paid off my mortgage, so I'm fortunate. Mm -hmm. But people that have mortgages, they're going to either lose their homes or extend them and have mortgages till they're in the grave. Um, And there's also the chance that it could end up like from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. There's Pottersville, where big corporations own homes and everybody just rents forever and that. And we need a change in government, federal government. Um, we need uh, Pierre Polly. He's mm-hmm. been talking about um, spending and such for over two years now. And it's all coming, you know,
1: to, But uh, the vision. I mean, people did need help during COVID. Are you saying that we shouldn't have provided that help or it should have just been uh, significantly less than what we are offering in, uh, in, in regards to COVID relief?
4: It should have been more organized and more targeted. People mm-hmm. needed help, but I think it's $32 billion extra billion that they uh, can't account for that were, was wrongfully dealt out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they acted haphazardly and help in the short term. Um, it, it can be detrimental if it's not done properly. And they need to uh, just, um, you know, like with the dental benefits, that's a great thing. Every, all children, all people, should, it should be part of our medical, uh, dental benefits. But if, you know, they, they tout that as wonderful, a few hundred dollars when you're giving them in one area, but you're taking for the rest because yep. inflation. I went to Superstore um, yesterday in the lower mainland and a sweet potato that was priced at $1.99 the week before was up to four forty nine. I called the store manager and the store manager checked and their profit margin was not, it was in line. It was just their their price to purchase had over-doubled.
1: Zelda, thank you so much for your yeah, call. I, Appreciate-
3: I might just come in here for one sec. Yeah, we got she 30 seconds. So right. <laughs> the Auditor General found $4.6 billion Four, in overpayments to ineligible recipients and $27.5 billion that, that should be investigated further, and that's money that the feds are probably not going to go out and get back.
1: No, and it's going to be very interesting Michael, I may give you a shout tomorrow to chat once again, because uh, I think the, the rate increases, are it, it's much bigger in regards to the average person's pocketbook than people believe, and I'm hearing so many anecdotal stories from real estate agents from people in the banking industry, it is not a pretty picture out there, and, and I worry no. about the impact on, on, on our listeners and uh, everyday British Columbia so thank you so much for your time today Thanks, Jeff Well, the saga over the controversial bike lane on Stanley Park Drive, occupying a vehicle lane, reached its final crossroads uh, last night. As expected, Vancouver Park Board Commissioners approved a member motion uh, by ABC Commissioner Angela Hare to remove the temporary bike lane that has been in place for much of the last three years. It was a 6-1 vote. Uh, And the motion orders Park Board staff to immediately remove the traffic barriers of the temporary bike lane and restore Stanley Park Drive's pre-pandemic traffic configuration of two lanes uh, for vehicles. Joining me now to discuss last night's uh, vote is Scott Jensen, chair of the Vancouver Park Board. Scott, thank you for joining us today.
5: Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Am so, I caller number
1: six, by the way? <laughs> Unfortunately, you're not. Uh, we are in the midst of uh, uh, they're calling right now. It's buzzing away, you can tell. But you are not caller number six, my friend. Uh, better thank luck you. next time. But we are going to try to give, uh, give away more things at 4.45, so stay tuned. But let's talk a little bit about uh, last night. How important was last night's vote for yourself uh, and your ABC uh, colleagues?
5: It was very important. I think we set forth with a a very detailed plan in regards to uh, the future of the current temporary bike lane and how we envision that moving forward into uh, a permanent uh, uh, cycling infrastructure through the park. And and again, uh, we were looking to create a balanced approach. That's what we ran on in the summer. Um, and uh, that's what really uh, gave us a success in October 15th. You mm-hmm. know, our our success was, was built around us creating a balanced approach that resonated across the city.
1: And just to confirm now, you are now going to work towards uh, a, a, a permanent bike lane solution, uh, and what is the timeline for that?
5: Well, we have asked that uh, staff report back to us on or before December 15th, and again, Uh, The purpose of that is is to ensure that we are doing this in a financially sound manner, and also in a manner that uh, ensures the safety uh, of all users of the park. Again, we're ensuring that the cyclists that currently are using that that route uh, will be safe as this transition occurs. Also that the the motorists are aware of of the configuration as they go around Stanley Park. one of the concerns that we've heard uh, both from the cycling community and from the uh, those that access the park through other vehicle modes is that the signage is not very clear and this is because of the temporary nature of, of the park uh, of the the lane and with our move towards a permanent uh, infrastructure you're going to see uh, better signage you're going to see painting on, on the on the le- on the ground and and so I think it's going to be a much better um, Infrastructure for all
1: users. Now, one of the things that I've heard on this show, uh, and we you know, the, the conversation around um, you know uh, reinstating those lanes for uh, motorists to, to to come into the park, we've had that conversation. Has it had uh, an impact on the park board's uh, ability to uh, 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 to attract revenue? Because, to my understanding, fifty percent is that. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Fifty percent of the park board's budget comes from revenue it collects uh, in and around Vancouver, but more importantly for me is did it have the, the, the ban itself or moving the bike lane there did it have an impact on revenue
5: yes it did and, and to to look back you know pre-pandemic uh, the parking revenue at that time was just over five million dollars in in the Stanley Park area so that's looking at not only the parking lots but also the the, the parking that was along the, the Stanley Park drive mm-hmm. and so many of those lots have been reopened however there are many uh areas where the parking has not been returned and if i can look back at that time um sorry to interrupt but uh you know prospect point um that area just around there uh that was bringing in almost ninety-one thousand dollars a year so we're looking close to a hundred thousand dollars a year in lost revenue just along street parking in that area um from lumberman's arch to pipeline, you're looking at forty-five thousand dollars again of lost revenue. So when when we're looking at uh, those difficult decisions in, in setting our fees, um, I would rather us be able to generate fees from uh, individuals coming voluntarily to the park and parking their car and enjoying the Stanley Park for what it is, um, and investing in our parks and infrastructure that way, rather than raising fees across the city. And so. Um, with us returning parking throughout the park, we're going to see better revenues and we're going to be able to
1: invest that money into our parks and our facilities. When you said $5 million in revenue, is that citywide or just Stanley Park? That's just Stanley Park. So uh,
5: Stanley Park has almost uh, 20 different areas where you can park. And so looking at those uh, revenue figures from uh, 2017 to 2019, that's the annual, annual average. Of five million one hundred eighty thousand seven hundred and seventy-five. So it's it's a pretty significant amount of money.
1: And how close do you think you'll be for twenty twenty-two? Now, partially it's been COVID, but partially we've had these lanes—the lane closed. Any idea what revenue will be this year so far, or which way it's headed?
5: Uh, At this point, we've asked staff to report back to us with those figures. So those figures have not been. Uh, brought to us as of yet because of the fact that there are many lots that are currently open in other areas that are not. So uh, we've asked for an exhaustive report to come back to us that clearly outlines where parking is open and available and which areas uh, parking is still not returned to pre-COVID levels. And so we want to be able to look at all of that data. And again, that's going to be part of what we're looking at uh, on December 15th, on or before that, or maybe as they report back to us uh, just around February of 2023.
1: Now, this temporary bike lane, uh, there were pylons there, to my understanding. What was the cost of even this temporary lane in regards to just the cost of the pylons or, or the barriers? I'm just curious. Uh,
5: well, again, and, and my research into this, um, which, you know, again, a lot of this information has not uh, really been brought forth, and, and looking at just F, um different uh, news cycles and looking at the financials, it's been very difficult. But the number that I'm looking at currently is basically $300,000 to to set up the the pylons um, when it was initially put in um, in 2020. So uh, I'm going to be requesting more data in regards to what the full cost was in regards to setting up this temporary bike lane.
1: So that, was that a one-time cost of the setting up uh, setting up the, the – uh, is, it, is, it, is it like a concrete barrier? Because I, I haven't been there in a while. Or is it just the actual sort of pylons and stuff like that? That, that was the rental cost.
5: So the, the costs that were quoted out uh, in,
1: in the media at that time was $300,000 for cones and uh, some concrete barriers. And that was a one-time cost or is this a yearly cost?
5: It, at this point in time, uh, it looked like it was a one-time cost. However, I have re- requested that information from the park board so that we can understand whether or not this is a year-over-year expenditure or not. Uh, again, the, the information that has been shared with us uh, was very top level in regards mm-hmm. to a lot of the, the information and a lot of the, the finer point details in regards to the financing um, they are reporting back to us with that. And again, it, we would have liked to have that information a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, how, at where we are right now, uh, we are look, we're more concerned in regards to the lost revenue and, and where we are moving forward and looking at regaining that.
1: Yeah, and, and, and I, I understand where you're coming from, but I just find it interesting that even if it was a one-time cost, taxpayers have paid $300,000 for concrete barriers and cones, which inevitably led to lost revenue which is also uh, if the park board doesn't have that revenue it then has to go to city hall uh, to to recoup that revenue to cover its basic costs so we're spending money to reduce uh, dollars coming in i'm not saying you're doing that i'm just saying the previous park board and its decision cost money in regards to setting up this this lane and then that led to a loss of revenue as well correct me if i'm wrong
5: you're absolutely correct and that's why it was so important that this was one of the first items that we brought to the board and one of the first items that we passed. It was significant. this will change the direction of where we, where we go with, uh, with this board in the
1: next four years. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate uh, you making time for us uh, and uh, look forward to chatting you f- with you in the future as well. Thank you so much. My
5: pleasure. thank you very much, Chad. We've got
6: a hot one for you. That's hot. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Oh, you're hot. Oh, that's hot.
7: Feeling
3: hot, hot, hot.
1: Now, the hot story, hot take. Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, I just wanted to uh, rant a little bit today. Uh, it was a week, week ago today. Uh, I was doing the show and uh, grabbed some dinner after the show and uh, calmly tried to get home at about 8 o'clock, left downtown, and and it was just a really nice commute. It only took me eight hours to get home. Now, I know a lot of you have called this show talking about Vancouverites can't drive. Uh, we need to make sure... Um, that, uh, you know, winter tires are made mandatory. Earlier today, we had a gentleman named Dan Dickey talk to our Mike Smith on his show. Uh, Mr. Dickey is a truck driver and advocate for safe, uh, safe road conditions. Uh, here's him talking about driving uh, and the unique, unique type of snow and the conditions here in Vancouver.
3: The road maintenance down there, I don't think is any better or any worse or any different than anywhere else in the province. I mean, the lower mainland has considerably warmer temperatures so when the snow does get compact it's extremely slippery and it, it is a challenging driving conditions for even people that are that are well prepared and experienced in it It's 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 a very different type of driving conditions than even are in most other areas of the province
1: Now, I appreciate Mr. Dickey's comments. Uh, He's a truck driver, so he's out on the road. And uh, and judging by his comments, certainly um, he is not just from Vancouver, but drives up in the interior in the north um, as well. My comments from that day, is it's it's not about me. Uh, I got home safely. It was all well and good. What I'm concerned for are mums and dads who have have to pick up their kids from uh, daycare, Uh, people whose lives are turned upside down, people who don't have a choice uh, in regards to different types of transportation to get home. This was a fundamental failing of government. I think you can blame municipalities to a certain degree, but the provincial government is the one I look towards that I think should carry most of the blame. In this case, we had uh, Delta mayor and Metro Vancouver board chair, uh, George Harvey, on yesterday. He uh, says he wants the B.C. government to review its snow removal contracts and consider using an emergency alert system to better inform drivers of dangerous road conditions. It was seven days ago today, and I have not heard one peep from the Minister of Transportation. Yes, they put up some bureaucrat. That's all well and good. This is what we do every single time this happens. We set our hair on fire. We complain. We point fingers and nothing is done. It is fundamentally wrong for us to accept this. What if an earthquake hit? What if there was another atmospheric condition? What if a bridge went out during an earthquake? A real emergency, not just a dusting of 20 centimeters of snow. Government has to be there. Yes, we can talk about winter tires and all those types of things. But this basic basic services, the government has to um, make available for the region in situations like this. It has to be there. This is where government is tested. When you look back, A, I pay my taxes. Well, do I get value for those taxes? This is one of those moments. And they failed miserably. It's not right to say, well, people left early and we couldn't uh, clean the roads. Well, you expect them to leave early. We're expecting snow. Global BC was reporting this over and over again for 48 hours. But somehow our bureaucrats, maybe they're sitting in Victoria, I don't know. But partially, I think uh, Mayor Harvey is also right, that we need to look at the contract from some of these uh, private sector uh, companies that we uh, outsource some of that snow removal. What do they provide? What kind of services do they provide in, in emergency situations? It's not just a snowstorm, but emergency situation. I don't have a problem with the private sector being involved, by the way. I don't think everything has to be handled by government. Everything has to be all the capital that goes into buying this equipment. But there's something fundamentally wrong. That in a G7 nation, a week later, we've just moved on. I mean, literally, we've just moved on. Yeah, George Harvey uh, sent a letter. Okay, now what? I haven't heard from the Minister of Transportation in those seven days. Maybe he's away. I don't know. But we just move on until the next time and nothing gets dealt with. Just think about that for a moment. We had an expert on last week, a professor, who is an expert in regards to emergency preparedness. And even he said, I can't believe it. He's concerned because when an earthquake hits, a a bridge goes down and it happens, folks. I covered uh, the tsunami uh, in uh, in Japan uh, and the earthquakes that followed. And that country went through a lot, but it had a system. Was it perfect? No, but it had a system, it was prepared they dealt with a tsunami, uh, an earthquake, and the aftermath of that. And it wasn't perfect. But boy, they had a system in place. They had a plan in place. We, a G7 nation in Canada, on the verge of winter, cannot handle 20 centimeters of snow. I hope we can fix this. I hope we don't do the same thing we do every single time. Live under the tyranny of the polite and say we're Canadians. Let's move on, and that's not the right thing to do. So that's that's my hot take today, folks. I just I'm just amazed seven days after the fact that we just sort of move on and nothing's been dealt with, and uh, it's been bugging me all day. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna I'm just gonna go. Go and talk about this today. Joining me now is Talia Miller. She's a technical producer here at, at CKNW, but she's also a, a, a former resident of London, Ontario. Now, did you grow up in London, Talia? I did. You grew up in... So we were talking about this yesterday, and and I don't want to go off on a rant and to Vancouver right? it's Can't Drive, or any of those kind of things, but we are talking just a little bit about how we handle winter here. I grew up in the interior, so I've been around snow in wintertime, real snow. Uh, and uh, my school wouldn't shut down unless it was minus 36 in the old days, Things have changed, certainly. Your sense of just winter, I mean, you, you, you. and it's not just the driving, but I'm just saying just walking around downtown and going about your day. Well, how do you see us Vancouverites during winter?
8: Well, th- see, there's this really great clip from The Office that I feel sums up the vibe of what happened when the snow did start to fall.
1: Oh, my God. Okay, it's happening. Everybody stay calm. What's the procedure, everyone? Calm. What's the procedure? Stay calm. wait, down.
8: I feel that's what happened when we started seeing white fluffy things fall from the sky.
1: Oh, that sounds like that sounds like a room full of deputy ministers yeah. <laughs> of Victoria. Oh, it's coming, I see it. I'm watching BC. Right? right. Like it
8: felt like this like you, like a real natural disaster when reality is it was just a bit of dusting, which you know, like the pile ups that we saw, like I was actually had that day off. Mm-hmm. And I was gonna use that day to go to North Vancouver and do my Christmas shopping. Saw all the warnings, and I was like, Ugh, you know what? I'm just going to stay home because my worst fear is getting stranded somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy that I did because, like you said, it took you eight hours to get yeah. home and all that. And, you know, this would be a walk in the park. I would still have to go to school if I was back at home. Like, we we hardly ever got actual snow days. Like, the only time we did was when the snow was up to your neck and you physically couldn't make your way down the street to make it in
1: that'd be that's an Ontario winter
8: that, that is an Ontario when, when, when winter you're
1: walking downtown even I mean we're all bundled up and, and you are.
8: <laughs> <laughs> you're all in like big parkas you got three scarfs wrapped around you your snow <laughs> pants like you're about to go to the North Pole and I, I feel funny for me because I'm like wearing like a sweater Because I'm like, it's really not that cold. And I hate to... Like, I get hot very easily. Yeah. So I always try to dress to be like, okay, like, am I going to be super sweaty by the time I get to work? Because there's nothing worse than that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's... it. It's downtown, so maybe it's a bit of a fashion statement, too. If you're going to spend $900 on a North Face or a Canada Goose jacket, I guess we, we have winter for about two months or six weeks. We gotta, two weeks. we got <laughs> to gotta pull up the jackets. Like, do you find us odd a little bit? Just forget a the little... driving and all that. I mean, we, I've had my rant, but just just us around winter and just walking around downtown. and
8: Like, a little bit, because even I saw people wearing, like, sneakers and slipping on ice, and I was like... You didn't think that one through, you know, like, but I did notice too, like, it took a while for like paths to be created and everything to be salted. Well, back home, I I would work morning show shifts. And by the time I was off by noon, main roads were basically cleared and salted overall. Mm -hmm. And maybe the side streets would be like a day later and some of the sidewalks, but everything was done swiftly and pretty quickly because you couldn't have the main roads be backed up or like in um, terrible conditions.
1: I think the entire region's uh, snow clearing budget here in uh, Vancouver, the metro Vancouver city of mm. two and a half million people grows by 30 to 60,000 residents every year. is about $10 million. The city of Kamloops uh, in the interior, I think is about two and a half million. <laughs> that tells you everything. Oh dear. Now we may, we may not have snow all the time, but You have to be prepared. And I think it's the cost of running a city and a region now, right? That's the thing. Oh, it's going to cost money. We'll spend the money because it's the cost of our roadways being open. It's the cost of businesses having employees show up to work, right? I mean, we had uh, somebody calling in from a hospital the next day saying they didn't have enough staff because people took so long getting home, they couldn't come in. And this is a hospital. Once again, this is a medical facility, a hospital, um... And and a bridge goes down in an earthquake, right? And it does happen. How do we deal with that? And we can deal with 20 centimeters of snow. So, I mean, uh, I'm going to be quiet now. I've, I've had my <laughs> rant. That's my hot Would take.
8: Would
1: we say it's a cold take? It's a cold take. There you go.
8: Let's talk
1: uh, Metro Vancouver. Let's talk big cities. The majority of Canadians live in big cities, of course. Those are the facts of modern life in fact that's a global trend uh, that uh, more and more people live in cities than in smaller communities what happens in big communities and that can be metro vancouver or victoria or nanaimo or kamloops uh, Or Prince George, what happens to these communities and how we live, how we interact with with each other matters. Well, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities is a group of big city mayors who come together from 23 of Canada's biggest cities. And they share ideas about what's affecting our communities and lobby government for infrastructure projects. Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke is at those meetings this week in Ottawa. She joins us now. Brenda, thank you for speaking to us today.
7: It's great to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having
1: me on. So what are you hearing in Ottawa? There's a lot of big city mayors. You're all talking amongst yourselves in regards to your respective cities and your needs and the challenges you have before you. What are some of the broad themes uh, you're, you're hearing about uh, in other in other cities uh, that are quite similar to Surrey?
7: You know, what was interesting to me was it was from coast to coast, every uh, Big city mayor said the same thing. It was about housing affordability, transportation, generally infrastructure. So uh, one of the issues I brought up was around uh, liquid waste and and uh, sewer sewer plants, that kind of thing, climate change, and and then of course mental health and addictions and the challenges that are faced with uh, people that are unhoused.
1: What do you as a mayor get out of these meetings? Uh, you obviously have some broad concerns that are similar, but if a taxpayer were to say to you, well, what do you get out of this? What are the benefits for the city? What would you say to them?
7: So what happens at these meetings is we get together, we talk about the issues that we're faced with. We can get ideas from one another as well, but we're also working as a collective on behalf of the uh of of all cities, but specifically on the big cities. To lobby, I guess is the best way to put it. To uh, talk to the to the federal ministers and the minister of housing was there, and we wanted to express our concern to him. Prime minister was there, and, and we certainly uh, expressed our concerns and the need for more uh, federal uh, dollars coming to cities. So those are those are really what we're there to do is to say. The need is great, and uh, the federal government, we need your support.
1: If you had two or three things that you could list off as the priorities for Surrey uh, that would require federal dollars and perhaps even some provincial dollars, what would those projects be specifically?
7: You know, with, without um, without a doubt, our, our number one issue is going to be mental health and addictions and health care. That is... Um, absolutely one of our most important it's been uh it's been devastating what has been happening um much of that is absolutely provincial government jurisdiction but there's some of it is also federal um but next for us is housing and uh housing stocks and how we develop and and work with that but when we talk about housing and we talk about affordability we're also including transportation so we're also including infrastructure um, so nothing is really on its own. There's nothing you can stokepipe with any of those. Uh, you can't build housing if you don't have the infrastructure uh, to support it, and we definitely need support there.
1: Isn't this mostly provincial jurisdiction, though? And shouldn't be the, the provincial government be the person you should be for, or the the entity you should be focusing on? Because so much of what you said, housing, uh, the provincial government plays a big role there. Uh, mental health addictions um, is really about health. Once again, provincial government. Um, when you look at uh, transportation, uh, SkyTrain being one, yes, the federal government can put dollars into that, but the provincial government plays a big role in that. Aren't most of your concerns more provincial than federal?
7: Um, it, they're they're all levels of government, actually. And, and uh, yes, they are also the provincial government, but it's going to take everybody together. So, for example, with... Um, with uh, budget 2023, the federal budget that's coming up, they're introducing a new housing accelerator fund. And so with that, we want to see some of those dollars and more of those dollars come to uh, Surrey. And and certainly from my perspective, uh, I'm there to represent Surrey. But in general, we're talking about Metro Vancouver. We need more uh, more of those federal dollars. And some of those are matched dollars. So when we're talking about... Um, Uh, infrastructure dollars, uh, often those are matched dollars with the province or they're allocated by the province. So yes, we um, do need the province on board absolutely and uh, that's important but it's really critical to get the federal government there too because their dollars are are, uh, important to us. Mm -hmm. Just as they were with the uh, Surrey-Langley Skytrain expansion, that's a good example of uh, where three um, the three levels of government needed to work together to get that on stream and and built.
1: Is part of our challenges, generational, and what I mean by that is, you look at the um, the snow, the challenges of snow last Tuesday, uh, seven days ago, where we had difficulty dealing with um, you know twenty centimeters of snow, um, and particularly on the on bridges and in the tunnel and along highways. We have an infrastructure deficit in this country of a hundred and fifty billion with a B billion dollars. We built most of our infrastructure in the 50s and 60s as Canada was expanding. And a lot of that, um, the lifespan uh, is close to nearing the end or very close to it. The, the infrastructure is poor. And now to replicate what we did when we used to have GDP growth of 5 6% in an era of 2% GDP growth or, or less sometimes, it is going to take time that we can't replicate what we were able to do in the past. But the realities of the infrastructure deficit is significant in this country, including in cities like Surrey.
7: Uh, you're absolutely right, and then you complicate that with extraordinary growth, which um, the uh, the federal government and the provincial government obviously uh, recognizes in our in our city and and generally in our region, but specifically in Surrey, because we're go- we're growing at uh, 1,500 people a month now. It's it's uh, very challenging to keep up with, and we also know that a lot of our old infrastructure is is Tired. it's time that it got uh, changed and, and we haven't been keeping uh, keeping up with it. That, that's for sure. And that's one of the reasons why um, these, these meetings are very critical. We have to get these um, dollars into our city. I can tell you, um, I just uh, was meeting with the Minister of Infrastructure and uh, one of the things we're looking at there is to help us with our diking in Surrey. We need help with uh, improving our diking, and we know from what happened last year that's not. those 100-year events are not happening every 100 years. They're maybe every five years. We just don't know, so uh, we need the support. Uh,
1: just turning to uh, local matters just for a moment here, uh, can you walk me mm-hmm. through once again the timeline for policing because that is one of the uh, issues that are... are are near and present for us what is the timeline right now in regards to the report and when we can expect the the final decision on on an issue like this
7: yeah sure and you know what thanks for asking um today i also met with uh the commissioner of the rcmp here in ottawa as well as uh, the minister of public safety just to uh, let them know what's going on so what is happening our next meeting on uh, december 12th we are getting our um, our report from from staff to the city to uh, to accept it, which I'm very hopeful it will be accepted by uh, council. Then by the 15th, um, we, it will be in the hands of uh, the minister. So um, it's, uh, it's been very rapidly getting done. Um, but... Uh, that's, that's our timeline to get the report to the minister and then they have to do their deliberations and I understand um, that there there may be um, a cabinet shuffle and we don't know um, what's going to happen if, if there's changes there but um, that's where we're at right now
1: so and so we haven't been given any sort of timeline is once the minister receives the report how long he, he or she will take. Uh, potentially with the cabinet shuffle in regards to a decision, could be a week, could be two weeks, could be a month?
7: No, we don't have any idea because he he hasn't seen the report, but he did say, and um, we do know that they want to work quickly on it. They do know that there are uh, time implications that are potentially costly. Um, So they do recognize that. Um, So we're we're hopeful that it will be done. Dealt with expedition school,
1: and to confirm, you've told the Surrey Police Service to uh, stand down on new hirings at this particular point, and and are they doing so?
7: Uh, it, we did ask them to do that, and no, they are not.
1: All right, so that uh, that that I guess is one more <laughs> issue that we'll have to discuss. It, it does go on and on, uh, Your Worship. You're Absolutely
7: right, Jazz. This has been a, a very um, unique. Uh, exercise for all of us and and, uh, challenging too for not just uh, for the people that are doing the work that I'm doing, but it's for the people on the ground. I feel sorry uh, that we're going through this for the members of the SPS and for the RCMP. This is uh, challenging for everybody.
1: Well, we'll keep an eye on it and look forward to chatting with you when you get back uh, back to Vancouver. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Um, Safe travels. Thank you. I know. Well, Google's top searches for 2022 have been revealed by the go-to search engine capturing the quarries and curiosities of Canadians in 2022. The now-the-nation grappled with world conflict, natural disasters, and terrifying public health concerns throughout the year. But the most commonly searched term offset those heavy trends now when you study from time to play dove into the google and youtube search habits of canadians in order to find the most searched how-to topic for each province and territory over the past year joining me now to discuss uh those searches is riannon o'donoghue from time to play riannon thank you for joining us today
6: yeah thank you so much for having me
1: well, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's quite interesting. that I think you can learn a lot about a community, a culture, or a country just based on what they're searching on Google or or, or YouTube. And you've certainly done a deep dive into what Canadians and, and even British Columbians are, are, are searching. Uh, was there anything that surprised you?
6: Um, yeah, I guess because it is the end of the year, I wanted to see what Canadians wanted to learn the most um, this year, I kind of forgot how popular Wordle was, even though it was only a few months ago. So, yeah, it wasn't just British Columbia that wanted to learn how to play Wordle. but It was a few other provinces as well, so that surprised me the most. So
1: British Columbians, uh, it, was a, it was a simple how-to play Wordle. Is that sort of the request?
6: Yeah, so that was like their most um, searched question this year in the how-to phrase. Like It grew by about 2,000% on Google. Um, more than, like, any other years, which was surprising. Uh,
1: what, what other things did you learn about Canadians in regards to uh, the how-to phrase?
6: I guess just kind of, like, their personality, I guess, um, because some of these were very unique searches. Um, I know a few wanted to learn how to get rid of bugs this year, and I've never been to, like, Newfoundland or I've never been to Prince Edward Island, so I guess there's a lot of bugs there that they're trying to get rid of but yeah i guess uh ontario had the breakout search which means like the search term grew by f- over five thousand percent on google trends and they wanted to learn how to draw a unicorn very easily this year so i guess they really <laughs> trying to entertain their kids
1: <laughs> wow uh and now you search google and youtube were any are there any unique searches for youtube
6: yeah um so, how to get sturdy. Stur- sturdy is like a very popular TikTok dance, apparently. Um, so, a lot of Canadians wanted to learn how to do that dance this year.
1: Well, that was um, the number one search? How to get yeah. sturdy?
6: Yeah. So, it's number one in BC, Alberta, and Ontario. So, <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Power of social media these days.
1: <laughs> uh, were there any other searches ac- uh, unique to other provinces?
6: Yeah. I guess um, Manitoba... Had a math question, like how to do long division on YouTube. Um, A few other provinces had like food-related questions, like how to cut a mango, a pineapple, or make French toast. And then Newfoundland wanted to learn how to roll a joint this year, which (laughs) I think.
1: (laughs) So was that the number one how-to request in Newfoundland for YouTube?
6: Yeah. Yeah, it was the ah, breakout search, too. So it was over 5,000% in search growth. <laughs> so,
1: hang on here. Manitoba's number one how-to request for YouTube was how to do long division, and Newfoundland's yep. how to roll a joint?
6: Yeah, you know, a lot of <laughs> things can happen in big country. <laughs> <laughs> I love
1: that. Since we're since we're uh, talking about uh, Atlantic Canada, Newfoundland, what 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 was PEI's uh, number one request? I'm curious.
6: For the YouTube, it was how to tie a tie. So I guess there's a lot of events happening this year for them.
1: (laughs) That's so we've gone from how to do long division, how to roll a joint, to how to tie a tie. Yeah,
6: yeah, the power the internet. <laughs> Do you recall
1: uh, what some of the uh, popular if not the most popular search term on YouTube was for British Columbia? Yeah, that
6: one was how to get sturdy, so the TikTok. I,
1: dance. It was the TikTok dance. Wow, okay. So uh, in regards to Google, the number one how to request in BC was how to play Wordle, and the number one how to term uh for British Columbians on YouTube was how to get sturdy, which is as you say the TikTok dance. Um are you, are you surprised like I, I'm always amazed that in the past and perhaps even on you know we'd we rely on word of mouth or uh, uh, you know we, we go to the library or buy a book to learn about a subject. it seems like Google and, and YouTube a certain degree has the answers for everybody now pretty much. It doesn't have to be a, a, a long answer or a big answer, but just a practical response uh, is what we're looking for.
6: Yeah, um, I think it just depends on like how people learn. I know some people are more visual learners like myself, so I tend to go to YouTube instead of wanting to read articles on how to do something. But I also think from the study that I did, it definitely can hint at the age demographic on these searches as well.
1: Wow. Uh, And and are we that different from the U.S., do you think? I mean, Do you think there's a uniqueness to, to different countries and cultures, or do you think it's quite the same?
6: I don't know because there's 50 states, so I don't know how they work down there. But um, I guess there could be some similarities with, like, maybe TikTok trends. Um, I don't know if marijuana is legal in a lot of places. uh, yeah, I'm not
1: sure in, in Alabama they're they're asking how to roll a joint. Yeah. maybe they are. <laughs> maybe they are. <laughs> and and uh, and we don't and we don't know. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is uh, incredibly um, informative in, in many ways in regards to like every day on this show. We tr- we get up and go. What do British Columbians and Vancouverites want to talk talk about? And uh, how to play Wordle or, uh, you know, how to get sturdy probably wasn't the number one conversation that came up. But the lesson learned for, for myself and our, our producer team, that's for sure. Thank you so much for your time today. really appreciate it.
6: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
1: That is Rhiannon O'Donohue. She is with Time to Play, where they did a search or how-to search of Google and uh, of um, YouTube. So, all the how to searches out there. And if you missed some of that interview, how to sturdy, which is a dance, as she said, how to play Wordle, which is the top uh, go to question in British Columbia. We're a tame lot, aren't we? You think it'd be something unique. I love. Manitoba how to do long division which is very interesting I guess that's the new math I don't know and uh, how to tie a tie uh, in PEI so you know like like Rhiannon said maybe there are events that they have to go to there I don't know and I think Newfoundland is well Newfoundland number one search there how to roll a joint isn't that supposed to be the BC question probably not so well done Newfoundland okay canada you never cease to surprise thanks for listening to the jazz joe hall show podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on apple or google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you can always listen to the jazz joe hall show live monday to friday from 3 to 6 p.m on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at JazzJohalBC. Talk to you next time.